Well, we're really excited about our, our last session for tonight. Um, and this is a, a, such an, a valuable topic because I've encountered people say, oh, the, the Coconino Sandstone in the Grand Canyon, well, that was, that's windblown. And, but is that true? We should always ask questions and, and, and think through them carefully. And, and Dr. Whitmore has done the research to think through this. And Dr. John Whitmore um, has been a geology professor at Cedarville University for over 30 years. And um, an excellent university if you're considering studying geology or maybe another subject. Um, so you may want to visit with him, uh, students, um, and finish getting close to that, that stage um, of going to Cedarville, Ohio. But we're really excited to have Dr. John Whitmore with us. He, he did a great job with Nate at the Dinosaur Tracks this morning. So why don't you guys uh, give a hand for Dr. Whitmore. Good evening, guys. This is the first time I've been in El Paso and have, have had uh, just a great time. Uh, a few of us went out to Carlsbad the other day, and then we've been looking at uh, Dinosaur Tracks this morning. Uh, really great place. Uh, didn't Nate Loper do a good job tonight? Yeah. He, uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything, but uh, he, he was dressed really nice tonight. And usually when I see him, he has a pair of flip-flops and a bathing suit on. <laughs> so I didn't even know he had clothes like that. So, <laughs> so all right. Well, I uh, teach geology at Cedarville University. Um, I've been uh, teaching there for 31 years now. It's a wonderful uh, Christian school. We got about uh, 4,000 students, uh, all kinds of different majors, uh, education, nursing, uh, engineering, uh, but my favorite major is the geology major. So we have a really good uh, science and math department, and uh, we have uh, about 25 geology majors right now. Uh, we've put geology majors um, all over the place in all different kinds of uh, professions, all different kinds of uh, places around the United States. So if you like dinosaurs, if you like uh, earthquakes, volcanoes, uh, landslides, uh, all kinds of water types of things, uh, come talk to me. Come see me in a few years. Uh, come study uh, dinosaurs with me. Come study uh, uh, Grand Canyon with me or... or uh, uh, fossils of some kind, so uh, we got a we got a great program. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Coconino sandstone tonight, and then a little bit a bit more about the Tapete sandstone that Nate uh, started to talk about as well. I've been going to the Grand Canyon uh, for a long, long time. I, I earlier this week I went back through uh, some pictures, and uh, and I found some. Let's see, are we hooked up with the remote yet? Maybe you could, you could uh, forward a slide for me. But I uh, went back a few years and, and looked at some uh, pictures. The first time I'd been to the Grand Canyon was 1979. And uh, that's the only picture over there on, on the side I can find. Uh, but uh, went there in 1985 with uh, Institute for Creation Research with Steve Austin. Uh, we started talking about Lake Overflow uh, way back then uh, on that trip. I went as a uh, student, a graduate student in 1999, and uh, did some, uh, that's when I first became interested in, in Coconino Sandstone, and then uh, starting about 2004 to present, I've been working on Coconino Sandstone uh, all those years, and I've found uh, just some really incredible things. 
I've been uh, so blessed to do a number of raft trips now uh, with Nate and uh, Dr. Snelling uh, down through the canyon, and it's really expanded my uh, knowledge and appreciation of the canyon and, and all kinds of uh, uh, wonderful things that we found there. Now, when you go to Grand Canyon, uh, if you go to the visitor center or uh, talk to a Grand Canyon geologist, uh, one of the things that they'll tell you is that the Coconino is a desert uh, sandstone. It's a fossilized desert. And one of the questions that immediately comes up is, well, doesn't that disprove the flood? And so uh, I wanted to study the Coconino. I knew what people had said about it, and I wanted to study it in some detail. And so one of the, one of the ways that I approach science is like this. Uh, and this methodology was actually developed by Leonard Brand. His picture is up there. Uh, but, you know, when we study Scripture, uh, how do we study Scripture? Uh, we might read commentaries. Uh, we might read different passages. So if we want to learn about the flood, uh, Noah's flood, we certainly read Genesis 6 through 9. But do you know Jesus talks about the flood? Do you know Peter uh, talks about the flood? Uh, the name Noah is mentioned in several of the genealogies. It's probably be good to, to look at some of those other things that mention the flood in Scripture as well, right? And so when we, when we study Scripture, uh, we want to take it apart. And we might look at it in different translations. But do you know that the, the Bible wasn't written in English? It wasn't written in Spanish. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and a few other languages. And so we want to go and either learn those languages or look at experts that, that understand those, right? And dig into the language a little bit and see if we're missing something um, about the flood. And we kind, of are, we kind of do a similar process with science as well. As scientists, we uh, start off with a question. Uh, we begin to investigate. We might do some experiments. We might make some observations. Uh, uh, go look at the rocks. Uh, talk to people. Uh, read what other people have written. Find out what other people have found, and so on. And we go through that process in science to to develop our hypothesis and theory about the the formation of various things. But what I really like about Scripture is that we don't have to stay over here. And what I really like as a, a scientist is I can go to Scripture for some of my answers. And I can go to Scripture for guidance and some of my questions. And so when I read Scripture, Scripture tells me about Noah's flood. And so when I go to Grand Canyon and somebody tells me a rock layer is a fossilized desert, I'm kind of like cheating a little bit because I might know already how, how, how the scripture says that rock layer is formed, right? But here's what it does for me as a scientist. Scripture gives me an idea. It gives me things to look for that other people have probably missed. And so when I go look at the Coconino with some fresh eyes, I see some things that other people have totally missed. And they've totally missed it because they have the wrong pair of glasses on. They weren't looking for those things, all right? And so that's a little bit about how um, I approached the Coconino and, and worked on the Coconino. Um, here's, a, here's a picture of the, the Coconino sandstone. Uh, let me go back one right here. 
Here's a picture of the Coconino sandstone at the rim. Uh, notice it's a nice uh, white uh, band, light colored band that's near the top of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's about 300 feet thick. Uh, so if you're hiking down a trail in Grand Canyon, it takes about an hour uh, to get to the bottom and a little bit further up to the top. And that was good for me because I wanted to go every down every trail in the Grand Canyon that has Coconino. And uh, so it didn't take me too long to hike down to the bottom and a longer time to hike up through as I made observations and, and studies on it and so on. So here's what it looks like in another, another place. And the reason that I wanted to work on the Coconino is that a lot of people look at the sandstone as an example. Uh, so the Coconino has these big cross beds in it. There are these big angled layers. I'll show you another uh, photo in just a minute, but you can kind of see uh, some of those angled, angled layers. There's my laser right there. You can kind of see some of the angled layers going down through uh, that way right there. But a lot of people look at these angled layers and say, well, those are fossilized desert sand dunes. And so we want to take another look at those and see. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to uh, take a look at this rock is because of what other people said about it. And the sandstone's well known. And as I said, uh, a lot of people use the Coconino to attack creationists. And they'll say, here's the Coconino sandstone, and it proves that Scripture's wrong. End of the story. And so I wanted to take a look at the Coconino uh, to see if we could find some evidence that uh, indeed the Coconino was made uh, during the flood. And probably one of my favorite reasons for studying the Coconino is it's in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I mean, what, uh, what better place can you go and study, study a rock formation? But anyway, here, here are what some of those crossbeds uh, look like. These are some angled layers uh, near Holbrook. And what happens to make these angled layers is sand gets carried up a dune and avalanches down the other side. Now, most people have seen these kinds of things happen in deserts. Geologists go to deserts and study this process, and so most geologists know right away this can happen in deserts. But do you know it can happen underwater as well? And most geologists haven't been underwater to see those kinds of things, and so they don't, they don't know about that. But the same, same angle layers can form uh, in air, or they can form underwater. So here's a couple people that have commented about uh, the Coconino. Uh, these are people that would say that Scripture is false when it comes to the flood, because the Coconino disproves Scripture. And so this, this guy says, uh, you don't need a PhD in geology to know that desert dunes and other desert deposits do not form under roaring floodwaters. These require not only time, but also dry land. The flood of Noah supplies neither. The Permian Coconino sandstones in the upper walls of the Grand Canyon have the frosted, well-sorted, well-rounded sand grains found only in land-deposited sand dunes. And so here's, here, here's what he's saying, that the Coconino proves the Bible's wrong, proves that the Bible is wrong about the flood. Um, here's another one. Um, this one uh, comes from author uh, Arthur Strayler, and he says uh, uh, similar things about the Coconino and also the Navajo uh, sandstone that we find in Zion National Park. And look at what it says right in the end, the last uh, bit of text there that I have in yellow. He says, in itself, it is sufficiently weighty to totally discredit the biblical story of the flood of Noah as a naturalistic phenomenon occurring in one year. 
So he says, all that we need is the Coconino and the Navajo, and we've disproved the Bible. All right, here are some others. Uh, this, this, these two uh, fellows right here, these are uh, Drs. Davis Young and Ralph Sturley. Um, they published this book uh, back in 2008 uh, called The Bible, Rocks, and Time. And these guys believe some of the stories in Scripture, but guess what? They don't believe all of them. And what they want to try to do is put millions of years into Genesis. And I think that is such the wrong approach to take. And you know why? Uh, we have genealogies that go all the way from Adam to Jesus. And the Bible clearly says that all things were made in six days. And who was made on the sixth day? Adam and Eve. And when Jesus was asked a question about divorce, uh, he said, well, it always hasn't been that way. At the beginning, when he made male and female, who is Jesus talking about? Adam and Eve. And when did he say Adam and Eve were made? At the beginning. Not millions of years after the beginning. And so I, you know, I, I take issue with guys like this from the very start because they, they, they aren't trusting what God's word says. Uh, but here's what they say about the Coconino. Uh, they say that the Coconino sand grains have, are all the same size. And they say Coconino sand grains are all the same size because that's what deserts have. And they say the Coconino sand grains are well-rounded. And why do they say they're well-rounded? Because that's how desert sand grains are. And they say the Coconino doesn't have any mica in it. I'll show you guys what mica looks, in a few, looks like in a few minutes. But mica is this uh, flaky mineral that can blow away really easy. And they say the Coconino doesn't have any mica in it. Well, you know what? They never looked. <laughs> and guess what? I did. <laughs> So we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, okay? Um, they say that the Coconino has steeply dipping crossbeds. They say that all these crossbeds are way greater than 20 degrees. Well, how do they know? You know what? That's because they know that because that's deserts have crossbeds that are way steeper than 20 degrees. But I don't think they ever measured any crossbeds in the Coconino. And I'll show you the, the, the uh, dat data that I collected uh, this guy, uh, this guy used to follow me around. I, I presented stuff at secular uh, geology conferences. Uh, Geological Society of America held uh, every year in different places. I would present uh, my findings on the Coconino. And this guy wrote an article for Earth Magazine and say, hey, guys, wake up. Creationists are presenting stuff at these conferences. And the Coconino is the starring role. <laughs> And uh, he wanted to make everybody aware, and, uh, you know, he, he said some things that, you know, weren't exactly right and whatnot about, about me and the Coconino. But this book tops it. Um, this book um, was published a few years ago, Grand Canyon Monument to an Old Earth. And these guys uh, talk about the Coconino, the Tapeats, and some other things in there. And again, uh, these authors are, uh, some of them are Christians, not all of them, but some of them are Christians but they don't believe all of Scripture. They don't believe Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, they don't believe that, you know, apparently God can create things by his word, just like he said. 
Uh, but they believe that the earth is millions of years old and think that the Grand Canyon is a monument to be able to show that things are millions of years old. And they talk a lot about the Coconino uh, in, that, in that book as well. All right, so here's the research approach. Um, I picked a couple researchers to, to work with me, and guess what we did? We went out and looked at the rock. Um, when you're a scientist, you want to make lots of observations. Okay? Part of science, of course, is reading the literature and finding out what others have said, but part of science is also getting your hands dirty. And that's the part of science that I really, I really like. It's a lot of hard work, but you got to get your hands dirty. And we did that. We went out and we spent a lot of time out in the field uh, looking at Coconino sandstone. Sometimes we were out uh, four weeks a year or something like that uh, doing research in the West. And uh, we not only looked at um, the Coconino, uh, we looked at uh, a lot of modern sand dune deposits so we can understand what, what modern sand dunes look like. And then we also did uh, the really hard work, which is library work. Um, it takes a long time to search down all the literature, read the literature, digest the literature, and so on, and figure all that out. And then we start doing the lab work. Uh, so we have a lot of stuff to look at under the microscope and measurements to make and things like that. And as a scientist, when you get all that done, you want to start to present stuff. And the reason that you want to present stuff is so that your colleagues, that your peers, can tell you if you're going down the right track or not. And so we presented our results both at uh, secular geology conferences uh, and at creation conferences. And after those presentations, then we proceeded to write scientific papers and all that. So that's kind of the, the step from beginning to end uh, that you need to do uh, when you do a research project. And it's a, it's a long project. It's a long, long uh, set of things that you have to, to work on. We uh, started making measurements. And one of the first things I did was uh, make some measurements on crossbeds. And guess what? I found out that the crossbeds in the Coconino were not very steep. Uh, I've also looked at a number of measurements recently in deserts. And a lot of deserts have crossbed angles uh, that are up to 40 degrees sometimes. And a lot of people in the literature were claiming that the Coconino had really steep crossbed dips, just like deserts do. And guess what? I found hardly any steep dips. And the average of the dips that we found was 20 degrees. And you look at desert deposits, and a lot of desert deposits have a significant, uh, a significant cluster of deposits right up in this, uh, significant cluster angles right up here. But look at where all the Coconino angles measure. Uh, the average is right here around 20 degrees. And so this is telling us that something is not right. This is telling us that, you know, these crossbeds probably formed in some other way than a desert. Okay? Uh, we looked at some other things. We looked at uh, the Coconino under the microscope. And when you look at the Coconino under the microscope, uh, most of the Coconino grains had sharp edges. When grains have sharp edges, we call them angular and most of the coconino grains were, were somewhere uh, right in here between moderately sorted to poorly sorted. But desert sand dunes, when you look at those grains under the microscope, they are, they're round 
and they're all about the same size. Now, here's what the coconino looks like under the microscope. Do those grains look very round? How do they look? Angular, sharp edges. And guess what that's characteristic of? Water deposits, okay? And so this is something that nobody had ever done before. You'd think, and it's such a, a basic technique in geology to, to collect a sample of the rock and cut it and, and prepare it and look at it under the microscope. And nobody had done this on the Coconino. They had made all these claims about the Coconino without ever doing this, okay? All right, here's another picture. Does that look very well sorted? There's a lot of different grain sizes. Now, I picked a picture that really illustrated my point, but I actually made measurements on, on about 400 slides and, and, and uh, collected all my data and presented averages and so forth. And uh, it turns out, uh, based on definitions, that the coconino is not very well sorted. So a lot of the coconino looks very similar to that. And again, that's characteristic of, of water-laid uh, deposits. All right, one of the first things I worked on in the Coconino uh, were these things. If you go to the rim of Grand Canyon, you, you can actually see these things. These are called, these are called uh, sand injectites. Um, you can see them from uh, Grand Canyon Village. And you, you read the literature on these, and people uh, ha told a story like this. Uh, they said that the Hermit Formation, which is the brown formation down below, uh, they said that was a floodplain. Lots of water, uh, mud, and stuff like this on a continent. Uh, the climate dried up, and when climate dries up, um, you get big cracks to form, mud cracks. Uh, so you guys have seen mud cracks in like dried up puddles and, and things like that out in the desert. Uh, these are giant mud cracks, they would say. And then they say the, the next part of the story is that the Coconino sand blows in right here, making the crossbeds. And as it blows in, it fills up these cracks. And so this is one of the first things I wanted to, uh, to study and look at. And as I looked at these cracks and I was making measurements on them and so on, um, I, I, I thought about this idea. If sand is falling down from above in these cracks, the sand in these cracks should have nice layers in it, right? So if it's falling down from above... But as I looked at a lot of these cracks, um, I noticed that none of the cracks had horizontal layers in them. None of them. Most of the cracks had no layers at all. And if the cracks had layers, it was really weird. The layers were vertical. I'm like, what in the world is going on? I had no idea uh, what, what was happening uh, with this. Uh, next slide there. And... So I, I went out and, uh, and, and did, some, uh, did, did a lot of research on these, uh, made a lot of measurements um, uh, over uh, quite a few years, and I came up with this map right here. And these black triangles right here represent how deep the cracks were. And I want you to notice the deepest cracks are right next to this red line. That red line is the Bright Angel Fault. And uh, as I went uh, west, the cracks disappeared. As I went to the east, the cracks disappeared. As I went to the north side of Grand Canyon and, and looked at things over here, 
the cracks were shorter. And what I began to notice is the very longest cracks were right next to the, the bright angel fault where it had moved the most. And so I came up with this idea that uh, the bright angel fault actually made these cracks. All right. So here is a conventional view. Um, in a conventional view, uh, we have the earthquake uh, happen, the fault moves, and we have these, uh, these uh, circles that I've drawn uh, represent the earthquake waves uh, moving through the rock. And as the earthquake waves move through the rock, my idea is that uh, this yellow coconino sandstone gets injected down into the hermit formation. And the farther away you get from the earthquake uh, source, notice how the length of the cracks get shorter, okay? And so I, uh, I talked about this um, uh, idea at a geology conference, and I had this lady from the Grand Canyon come up to my poster. Uh, she was a geologist, a park ranger at Grand Canyon as well, and I talked to her about this idea, and I said, and she said to me, this is really exciting. Uh, you need to come to the park and, and uh, talk to the, um, the uh, interpreters. Uh, you need to, to publish a journal and publish an article in the Boatman's Journal and other things like that. And I said, wow, that's great. I'm glad you uh, like what I found. Now, here's the problem with, with this idea. Uh, the Coconino uh, was made... Um, according to the conventional idea, 275 million years ago. The earthquake right here happened about 50 million years ago. All right, I know some of you guys are good in math. So what's 275 minus 50? 225 million years. And so here's the problem. And I told the lady this problem. I said, you know... The problem is there's a lot of time that passes between the formation of the Coconino sandstone and this fault. And the Coconino sandstone would have been rock hard by the time this fault came along. And if the Coconino sandstone was hard, how could you get the wet sand being injected downward into those cracks? She didn't know what to say and she walked away. She came back about a half hour later and I could tell she was steaming mad. <laughs> and all she wanted to know is how many millions of years old I thought the Coconino was. She had talked to somebody, found out I was a young earth creationist, and uh, wanted to let me have it. But I wouldn't tell her. I wouldn't tell her how, old, how many millions of years old it was. But do you see what happened? She let her worldview uh, cloud what she thought was a really good idea. As, she, as soon as she found out that that good idea conflicted with her worldview, what happened to the idea? It was gone, right? She, she didn't, uh, didn't like that idea anymore. And so here is a uh, creation view. You might have to advance my next slide for me, please. But here's an alternative view. So we get the, the hermit formation, the Coconino sandstone laid down during the flood. Not much time passes, less than a year. We have some faulting that, take place, that takes place. And when that fault happens, the yellow Coconino sandstone is still liquid. It hasn't turned into hard rock yet. And so it can flow downward into those cracks. 
and problem solved. And so these cracks show us they can help us eliminate hundreds of millions of years of time from the rocks in Grand Canyon. Next one. So something else we found that was really exciting, and I think, Nate, you've been down to Sedona and have seen these, but uh, I have a friend down there, Guy Forsy, and uh, he, I, I was talking to him, he said, uh, he said, John, what do you need me to find in Sedona for the Coconino? And I said, well, it'd be really cool if you could find some soft sediment deformation for me. And do you see that, uh, see the rock up there? Do you see how it's bent? Uh, have any of you guys had some geometry yet? I know a lot of you guys are homeschoolers. Uh, so what's what's uh, this? Uh, I can't make it because I bent my paper. I folded it. But what's this U-shape called right there? The U-shape is called a parabola, right? A parabola. Well, these parabolas are turned on their side. Do you see a sideways parabola up there? And so uh, Guy Forsyth found these things, <laughs> sent me an email I still remember opening up the email, and I'm like, my jaw about hit the desk. And I literally was out to see those things in, uh, in Sedona about two weeks later. I couldn't, couldn't uh, stay back. I uh, figured out a way to get out there. But um, these are some things called parabolic recumbent folds. And guess what? The only way that parabolic recumbent folds can be made is underwater by strong currents. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so here's, here's some other ones that we found in Sedona. You can see the water current that's moving up there. And what happens is the water, as the water current moves along, it actually flips over the angled crossbeds into those parabolas. And you can't make these any other way. You can't make them by a slumping dune. A slumping dune would not make a regular parabolic pattern like this. It would be all, all messed up in some other ways too. And some of these folds are... Or uh, I need to, do I need to convert my meters for you guys? 400 meters? <laughs> How about four football fields long? Does that make sense? Um, but uh, some of these folds, you know, just go for a long ways in the outcrops in Sedona. And I think, you know, proves that the, the Coconino is made underwater. Uh, next slide, please. So there's a couple ways, a couple technical ways in which uh, you need to pull sand grains apart. So those little white balls up there represent sand grains. But the, the key is the sand grains have to be in water. Uh, this can't happen in dry sand. It can't happen in damp sand. It has to be water-saturated sand in order for the physics to happen to make these uh, folds, uh, to make these rocks actually bend over and uh, fold over. So next, next one, please. So um, uh, uh, Ray Strom and Paul Garner and I and uh, Guy Forsyth, uh, we did a lot of field work. And uh, one of the places we went to is Parashant Canyon and west of Parashant Canyon. And we, Ray Strom and I, were up in this outcrop and we found those four gray beds up there that have the uh, X's on. And we didn't know what this stuff was. And here I am, a PhD geologist. I teach physical geology to my students, teach my students how to identify minerals every fall. I teach a petrology class, which is, you know, the identification of all different kinds of rock types. And here I am in the field with Ray Strom, and he um, analyzes rock samples for oil companies, tells them, you know, what minerals are there. 
and neither one of us can figure out what in the world these grave beds are. And uh, we had our hydrochloric acid bottle with us and dropped acid on there and, and no, no fizz. And you know why we couldn't figure out what these things were is because we weren't expecting what we found. Uh, after Ray got back to the lab, he put it in his XRD machine and found out it's dolomite. Now, I could have identified it as dolomite in the field, but I forgot to scratch the rock and then put my acid on there. And it's dolomite. And the cool thing about dolomite is it's only a marine mineral. It doesn't form in any other kind of setting, only forms uh, in the ocean. Even cooler yet, it's not forming today. Maybe 10% of all the layered rocks out there are dolomite. And none of that is forming in the oceans today. Uh, geologists can't figure out how it forms unless the water's really hot. If you have hot water, then you can make lots of dolomite, but that's not really a common uh, condition in the world's oceans today. And so geologists don't, don't think outside the box like that. But, you know, this dolomite here not only demonstrates the coconino was made underwater, but demonstrates it was probably made under some pretty special conditions. The next slide here uh, shows some more dolomite. These are uh, little BB-shaped uh, types of things. Here's a new word for you guys tonight, ooid, O-O-I-D. These are dolomite ooids. And we found uh, dolomite class and dolomite cement, all kinds of dolomite in this formation. And uh, it just screams that this is an underwater deposit. And any geologist will look at that round ball up there and tell you it's an ooid. But I had a experience at a geology conference a few years ago, a PhD geologist, he knew I was a young earth creationist, came up with me to argue with me about my poster, and I had a picture of these dolomite ooids on there, and he's like, what are those? And I'm like, ooids. And he's like, those aren't ooids. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> Every geologist knows they're ooids, but he, he, he just couldn't um, bring his brain to think that way because he thought, you know, this is a desert deposit. Uh, ooids don't form in deserts. They form in, in beach settings and things like that. And so sometimes somebody's worldview will completely uh, blind them uh, to the evidence that's right there in front of them. Next one. Um, all right, remember that uh, quote I showed you about the mica? Well, here's a piece of mica in the coconino. This is under the microscope. So that... Uh, a uh, flake in there. I got two red arrows at each end. That's a piece of mica. And uh, we collected about 400 samples uh, for thin section. Uh, don't worry, in places like the National Park, we have to have permits to do that. So you can't collect the rocks without a permit in some places. And we did. We got permits. But almost every sample of coconino that we looked at under the microscope had mica in it. Everyone. Now, we thought that was pretty exciting, but we wanted to go back to the lab and do some studies. And so what we did is I had a student, um, and this is, this is for you guys, uh, homeschool guys over here and, and school-age kids, this is an experiment that you guys could have done. Uh, I had a student take a pickle jar. He put an airplane propeller in the top of the pickle jar put some sand in the pickle jar with mica in it. And I said, all right, turn that airplane propeller on. This is going to be our laboratory desert, okay? We got the wind blowing with the propeller going around. And I said, I want to know how long it takes that mica to disappear. 
And he let it go for a couple weeks and you know, couldn't find any mica. I'm like, Alex, you got to check that a little more often. And you know he found out that that mica disappeared after two days. Um, and so what, what is the take-home? That mica disappears quickly in the desert. It gets chewed up. The mica is, is just as hard as your fingernails. And it's hitting that really hard quartz sand, and the quartz sand just chews it up. And, and all the, uh, the desert sand samples that we collected, we didn't find mica in any of those samples. Uh, mica disappears really fast in the desert. But that's only one part of the experiment. I had another student do a second experiment where he took the same sand and took um, uh, the, put the sand in the pickle jar, filled the jar with water, and then turned the, the pickle jar sideways on a rock tumbler. And so this thing was tumbling around. And you could actually see the silver mica flakes floating around in the water. And so this thing is, uh, my lab was uh, right outside of, uh, of my office. And so this thing is, I'm working in my office and this thing is going. And running 24-7, he never turned it off. And after a year, I said, Kelvin, <laughs> turn that thing off. There's still mica in there. We know it lasts a long time. And, you know, the, the coconino has mica in it. So what does that tell us about the conditions under which it was made? Probably water, right? Okay, next one. So the, uh, the, the, one of the last things I did about the coconino is I made a map. I made a map of how far it extended. And I was able to trace the coconino for all the way from California to Arizona to Utah uh, it comes through Texas, uh, right through this area. It goes up into Oklahoma and Kansas and all the way up into the Dakotas. This is a big sheet, and in most places it's not very thick. And I was able to trace it out from, from place to place, and uh, you can see the, uh, the, the uh, section number 8 and 9 are, are pretty close to this area right in here. But uh, I was able to trace it uh, all the way up to North Dakota and South Dakota. It's a big sheet. And if the next slide here uh, shows the uh, wind directions, I don't know if you can show the, or the, uh, the current directions on here. So most people, when they publish this in the literature, they think they're wind directions. And so I began to plot all these directions on a map. And guess what? They all go in the same way. But if you go to a place like the Sahara Desert, uh, the Sahara Desert's really big, but you could probably superimpose it on the western United States. It'd be about the same size. But if you look at the Sahara Desert, the wind directions go completely 180 degrees. And so you might think if these are really wind directions in the sandstone, that they wouldn't be all pointed south. But if this was a water current that was moving sand during the flood, uh, you might expect them to all be in the same direction. So that was a really exciting finding uh, that we found. So here's kind of a list of some of the things that we found. And, you know, um, here's what I learned. We need to trust what Scripture says. Sometimes, you know, we might have some legitimate questions about something in Scripture. I still have some legitimate questions about some various things, about the flood and stuff like that. But you know what? I know that if I go do the science and if I collect the data and work on it and I don't have time to do every single project, 
but maybe some of you guys do. Maybe some of you guys have some time to do some of these things. Uh, think about going into a field of science as you as you get ready for college. But uh, I, you know, what I learned is that you know, even when I face an impossible task, that if I do the science and do the science well, I might not find all the answers I want, but I can find evidence that you know this supports what God's word says, and that's that's exactly what I found. All right, next slide there. So uh, Nate. Uh, talked about a couple really cool things with the Tapit sandstone. And uh, I want to wrap up tonight by talking about a few more things about that. Um, Nate talked about uh, the Tapit sits uh, right above the Great Unconformity. Next slide. So there's the uh, Great Unconformity in Grand Canyon, and right above that yellow line is the Tapit. Uh, next one. And here's a close-up. Nate showed you guys a picture uh, from this very spot. This is in Blacktail. Uh, canyon right there. And my boss, I took my college president <laughs> on a trip or a raft trip with me one year. But uh, my boss has his uh, right hand there on the tapetes right above the great unconformity. All right, next slide. Uh, Nate also talked about the extent of the tapete sandstone. So the tapetes uh, goes all the way uh, from uh, California. We can trace it all the way from there up into Greenland. And where I live in Ohio, uh, it took me a long time to fly here, <laughs> but we can trace uh, that same sandstone layer all the way there. And Nate talked about, uh, showed you guys some maps, how it goes over North Africa, where you can find it in the southern part of Israel. Uh, and it looks like it's a worldwide uh, deposit. Uh, next one. Uh, here's what the Tapetes looks like along the Colorado River. It just has some small crossbeds and, and some things like that in it. Next one. And then... Um, can you guys see what's going on in that picture? Are the rocks flat? So there's a big bend. There's a big bend that goes like this in the rocks. Do you guys see that? It's kind of in the shadow in the middle of the picture where that big bend is. All right. So this is uh, a new part of the project uh, that I've been working on uh, with uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling. And uh, he's actually publishing the, the technical pieces of this work. So I'm not going to cover uh, the technical uh, pieces of that and the microscope uh, uh, work that he's done and, and stuff like that. Uh, he's already published some of that in Answers Magazine. And we'll have uh, the scientific uh, uh, end of that article coming out probably in January in uh, the uh, uh, Answers Research Journal. But... Um, uh, in 2017, uh, Dr. Snelling uh, took me along on a, on a river trip with him to collect some of these rock samples. And the, the whole story about uh, um, the Park Service not allowing him to have a permit and whatnot is a really fascinating one. You can find some more details on Dr. Snelling's article in Answers Magazine. But uh, in 2017, we were granted permission uh, to go collect these rock samples. And this was one of the folds uh, that we collected samples from. Next slide there. Um, here's another one. And again, uh, the, the bend over there is kind of in the dark area of, of the fold uh, right up there. But these rocks are supposed to be flat. You can see what happens to them. They're going along like this, and all of a sudden, boom, they shoot straight up at a 90-degree angle. Okay. Uh, next slide. So um, a question I asked on the, on the uh, 
trip we were on this morning looking at the dinosaur tracks. Uh, we looked at a small fold out there. And I asked you guys a question. Uh, can you bend a hard rock? What happens if you try to bend a hard rock? It breaks, right? So the first top picture I have is the rock hard or soft? Hard. And what about the bottom one? Well, the, the bottom rocks are hard because they broke. Okay, but the top rocks, they bent. Okay, so those rocks probably have to be soft. All right, let's look at the next one. So here is the conventional idea about these big folds uh, that we have in Grand Canyon. The idea is that uh, we have that granite uh, down there, and this is what uh, secular scientists would claim or those that would claim that the earth is uh, hundreds of millions of years old would claim. Uh, they would say that we had the granite that's uh, about 2.6 billion years old or so, uh, that we have uh, Tapeats, Bright Angel, Muav, that those uh, rock layers got laid down about, a, about um, 500 million years ago. And then they would say that at about 50 million years ago, uh, there was some faulting that happened deep in the earth, and as that faulting happened, uh, the rocks up above there bent. Okay? But when they bent, they would say that these rocks were hard. And so they argue one way you can try to bend hard rocks is by putting them under a lot of heat and pressure. So if you put them under some heat and pressure, they might be a little bit more pliable, and maybe they'll slide a little bit easier, and then that they'll bend. All right? So that's the conventional claim. Um, next slide. Uh, so here would be uh, the young earth claim. Uh, we, for years, had been saying, as uh, young earth creationists, that this is a really obvious example that millions of years don't exist in these rock layers. And our argument was that the granite would have been made uh, at creation week, okay, day three, uh, that the layers up there, that those are flood layers, and they were made uh, during the flood. And then while the layers were still soft... Just about a year after the flood was over, this movement happened. And because the layers were soft, as the movement happened, they, the layers were easily bent. All right? So that's a young earth uh, view. Next one. So how do you figure out which one of these claims is correct? How do you figure out whether the old earth claim is correct or the young earth claim is correct? Uh, there's a couple easy ways to do it, and then there's some harder ways to do it. Um, one of the easier ways is, if these rocks were bent under heat and pressure, these rocks should go through a process of metamorphism. So Nate talked a little bit about meta what metamorphism is. Metamorphism means change. And so uh, as a geologist, and even my freshman geology majors know, that when you metamorphose sandstone, you get quartzite. And the Tapit sandstone is not a quartzite. It's a sandstone. Okay, it's not metamorphic. Uh, so that's one way we could figure it out. Um, another way we could figure out which, which claim is correct is we could actually collect rock samples and look at the rock samples under the microscope 
uh, to see if the rock, uh, see if the grains of rock have fractured and, and rotated and stuff like that when these hard rocks moved, or if the rocks were soft, you wouldn't see any of the, the, the grains fracturing and breaking and stuff like that under the microscope. So next slide. Um, so that's what um, Dr. Snelling and I did. Uh, we went to this fold, and in the first picture there, you can see the 90-degree bend right there. Uh, we actually collected a couple rock samples in that 90-degree bend. And uh, there's a picture of Dr. Snelling over there uh, getting ready to uh, take a rock sample of the tapetes right there in the next slide. Um, there, there I am up in the rock outcrop. And uh, what we did before we took samples, we put uh, orange pieces of tape on the outcrop. And we wanted to number the samples. We marked on the samples which way is up. So when we look at it under the microscope, we know directionality and stuff like that. And also with the orange tape, we could stand across on the other side of the canyon, take a picture and see exactly on the, you know, the big scale outcrop, you know, where we took all these samples. Um, so what did Dr. Snelling find? Uh, next slide. Um, Dr. Snelling found that the sequence of events that we've been suggesting all along for Grand Canyon uh, support the young Earth. And so here would be a sequence of events, and that sequence of events right there is now based on Dr. Snelling's microscope work uh, that he's done. And I won't show you any of those pictures because that's his uh, story to tell. Um, how many of you guys have seen uh, the movie that came out five years ago is Genesis History? Does Have some of you seen that movie? Uh, really well done movie by Thomas Purefoy. Uh, he goes around uh, with lots of different scientists and talks about uh, biology and geology and volcanology and uh, they go to zoos and, and uh, archaeological museums and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, the film uh, starring Del Tackett uh, really builds the case that Genesis is a book of history. Um, that this book is not a book of uh, stories or, or myths or legends or anything like that. This is uh, a history book. Just like you would read a U.S. history book or a world history book or a European history, Genesis is a history of the early part of the earth. And it's real. Uh, Thomas Purefoy is following that uh, um, is Genesis history movie up with a, with another film talking about what happens right after the flood, the rising up of mountains. And in that movie, which will come out in February, uh, this this fold is going to be talked about. And uh, Thomas Purefoy will, uh, in the film, interview Dr. Snelling. There'll be some uh, video footage uh, from the trip that we made uh, here in uh, Grand Canyon. We've done some filming at Cedarville and some places like that. But uh, that film will uh, describe in detail um, how the entire West rose up after the flood. And that includes places like El Paso. Uh, this entire area rose up, and as it rose up, those rocks were bent. And so because the rocks are bent and not broken, it shows up, shows that they rose up soon after they were laid down. It shows us that there's not, you know, almost 500 million years 
in between the laying down of these rocks and the, the rising up of these rocks making the bends. So this is really good evidence that the earth is young. It's not just good evidence of the flood, but it's good evidence that the earth is young. So um, let's. Uh, this is my last slide here. I showed you these sand injectites in the Coconino. And the sand injectites were made during the same event that folded those rocks over there on the right. Same event. And these two things, the sand injectites and that fold, show us that the claim that there's millions of years represented in the rocks of Grand Canyon is false. Uh, notice I haven't done any radioactive dating or anything like that here. I'm just looking at some physical evidence to show us that these rocks are young and that these events happen very close to each other. And those are some of the things that, that you guys can figure out. And I just, I just want to encourage you, we have such a need uh, for young uh, scientists to come and find out more of these uh, really cool things. Uh, so I'd encourage you in those ways. And uh, for the rest of us, um, I would encourage you as you read Scripture, that's God's Word. And God's Word is true. And uh, we can depend and we can trust it and we can depend on what it says. So thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Whitmore. Uh, again, excellent uh, presentation. You know, I've been thinking it would be great to have a T-shirt that said, turn that thing off. We know there's mica in there. Um, but what somebody in here maybe can make that for a fundraiser for the Creation Network <laughs> or have a shirt with folded layers on there. You know, believe it or not, I actually get into many gospel conversations talking about uh, flood geology and dinosaur uh, soft tissue. I, I, I talk uh, just the past week or so, I had a... <clears throat> Uh, a really great conversation with a family member, and we had uh, we recently lost my brother-in-law. It was, it was very shocking and sudden. And I was talking with another family member, and um, he actually eventually explained to me. He said, "You know, there was millions of years uh, of of death and evolution before Adam and Eve." He essentially articulated that, and he's this family member is not a believer, and it actually clicked with me that. That was one of the key issues for him, it seems. Um, that he's saying before Adam and Eve, there's death and evolution. Yet scripture, and I talk with him, he says, well, Jesus says, uh, and we see in the rest of the scripture, that it's clear that his death has meaning. The wages of sin is death. And so it, it's, it seems like the gospel doesn't make sense. The foundation of the gospel is undercut. So you guys... This is why it matters that we even search out these, these issues. We respond, we take captive every thought to the Lord Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says. And that involves even with the rocks. And so one of the pivotal moments when I was down there at the Grand Canyon, was, which is, is what Nate and Dr. Whitmore were talking about, is that great unconformity. You touch creation rock, and then you touch the beginning of the flood rock. And it's, it's interesting because I didn't know how I was going to think about it when I got there. I was like, man, that's going to be so neat to go down there. It was kind of like a holy moment for me and many others because we're just like, wait, I'm really touching creation and flood rock. And then it clicks in there that you have this, this fear of the Lord in all the good ways that, man, God 
in his loving kindness died for me. God, he rescued me from his judgment as he is that greater ark of salvation. See, I went through a season of struggle when I didn't think the flood was real. I didn't think I could trust God's word. But when I saw that, that moment, it comes into focus. We don't have all these issues worked out, but we do see clearly that the rocks cry out. There was a global flood. God's word can be trusted. 